Everyone else, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26 this morning. Matthew 26. The Bible, as you know, is brutally honest about the failures of its heroes. It really is a remarkable thing. We are in the Bible allowed to see the great heroes of the faith in their most private, and shameful moments. Would you like to have been a person recorded in the Bible? Sometimes the Bible gives us insight into their private conversations that looking back on, I'm sure they were mortified just like you might be if everyone knew your every private word. Sometimes the Bible even gives us insight into their innermost thoughts and the sinfulness that so often characterizes even us as disciples of Jesus. The Bible doesn't turn away from these things. God presents them graciously, but He presents them honestly. And I think the Spirit of God does that in the Scripture probably for several reasons. One being that this is a demonstration that this is, this is God's book. This is a divine book. What human authors would show the such failings of the great heroes that they're trying to lift up and get everybody to follow? I think even more than that, It's a demonstration that salvation is not by works. It's not by human merit of any kind. There's no one in the Bible that's held up as an example of someone who was so righteous that he earned his place before God. Not a one. You take the greatest heroes of the Bible, the names that we revere, the apostles, the fathers of the Old Testament, every one of them, has flaws in their character. Some of them that are so glaring that we're like, how could somebody like that do that? There, there's there, Really, we talk about our heroes. There, there are no heroes in the Bible but one. Amen? And that's the sinless Son of Man. But I think also the Lord records these failings of even those that we look up to with great respect, recorded in the Bible, in order to give us an example, a a cautionary tale about what can happen to us. And so, to prepare us, um, and I think that's what you have in, in many cases, including the text that, that we'll read this morning. And, you know, when I read these stories, these accounts, I'm reminded so often that these are 
real people, our brothers and sisters, that we will likely have conversations with one day. We will get to meet them. And so, you know, when you when you deal with a passage that where one of those people has such a great downfall, you, we treat it with grace, with graciousness, but it's but the scripture te- treats it with candor as well, and I think it does so that we can be instructed, that we can be warned. And I just have to believe that in that in their glorified sanctity even those men and women whose failures are recorded in the Bible would are happy that we're talking about them and thinking about them with grace so that as long as we can learn from them. I mean, that, that's some spiritual maturity and that I don't think we'll have until we get to heaven. But I trust that God has given those people that kind of grace and And so we will learn from, I trust, this text this morning. Let me give you the background for what's going on here. Jesus is laying down his life, the Bible says. He's deliberately orchestrated the whole timing of these events. He has taken control of the situation in which he is arrested. And he speaks at his trial in such a way as to ensure his conviction. All of this because he is certain that his crucifixion and suffering and death are God's plan for him and for this world, and he is absolutely determined to do the will of God. And so in the Garden of Gethsemane, there on the eastern slopes of the hill adjacent to Jerusalem, he is arrested. Uh, Judas, you remember, came with a band of armed men, probably including some Roman soldiers, some temple guards, and some others. So they've captured Jesus. Apparently they led him through that garden and in through one of the many city gates in Jerusalem, across up to the uh, the, the hill just to the west of the Temple Mount Hill where probably was the palatial home of the father of the high priest. His name was Annas. Jesus was brought to him, the Bible says. Uh, Annas questioned him for a short period and then had him bound and taken uh, across probably to the other side of that same estate to the home of the high priest, Caiaphas, where he lived with his family. And uh, Mark, in his gospel, tells us that it was a, a pretty large house. It had several, uh, at, least, at least two levels or floors. and It was built in such a way that you entered through a gateway, perhaps through a passageway, and it came out into a shared central open courtyard with the various wings of the house surrounding that open courtyard where probably various parts of the extended family lived. And it was there that Jesus was questioned off and on throughout the night and on into the next morning. And the Bible tells us that Jesus' disciples in the garden 
when they saw this mob coming and they heard the conversation going on and, and they saw what was happening and Jesus began to be arrested, that they all, every one of them fled. They just ran. Um, they got out of there. They forsook our Lord. However, one of the disciples, um, most people presume it was John, uh, he knew the high priest and so was granted access at some point to the courtyard of the high priest where this trial was being held. And the Bible says that Peter also eventually came back and saw the group uh, torch lit heading into Jerusalem and followed them a long distance behind, hiding in the shadows, but wanting to see the end for himself. And if you remember all that's happening in Peter's life and everything that had led up to this and the events in the garden and he attacks this high priest servant and the Lord rebukes him and he puts the ear back on and, and then everybody and then there's mobs with clubs and you just imagine some of what the anxiety that's going on in his heart, but his his desire to to make up for his failings, perhaps. You know, you, you just put yourself in that kind of situation and and so he's following far off, and finally John, in the courtyard there of the high priest, he goes to the servant girl who kept the gate after seeing Peter perhaps loitering across the street, and he speaks to the girl to ask her to open the gate for Peter. And Peter, as well, is, is brought into the courtyard where Jesus is uh, undergoing his questioning. And that brings us to our text then, which is Matthew chapter 26, verse 69, through the end of the chapter. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all. I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while the bystanders came up. The bystanders came and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Jesus is on trial in the house. But while Jesus is on trial in the house, Peter is facing a trial of his own out in the courtyard. Like our Lord, Peter would be tested three times. And his troubles begin the very moment that he comes into the gate, into that courtyard. The Bible says the first test comes from a servant girl, the servant girl who opened the gate to him, John says, and after seeing him come up to the charcoal fire and getting a little 
a glint of light on his face. She thinks she recognizes him. She says, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. And I don't know if who, what Peter thought up to this moment, if he thought he might just blend in with the crowd, but you can just imagine in that moment how he must have felt. All of a sudden, I mean, his cover is blown, as it were. You can imagine the, his heart beating faster, his blood running cold. He looks around at the crowd still milling about some of them. I'm sure some of them had peeled off, but there's a, there's a good number of those soldiers and, and, and those uh, armed men that are still there in the courtyard, and he begins to just, you know, you, you just feel your throat clenching up, right? What will he say? The adrenaline is running through his veins, and he answers, I don't know what you mean. I don't, I don't know him. I, I am no, I'm not his disciple. And in that moment, Maybe he's safe. Maybe he can blend in. And Matthew tells us in verse 70 that he denied them. He denied it. He denied knowing the Lord and being one of his disciples before them all. And that had got to make Matthew's readers Remember, just a few chapters earlier, back in chapter 10, when Jesus said in chapter 10, verse 33, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. That is a sobering thing. For anyone to deny the Lord Jesus Christ in an, with, without repentance to go on and to turn their back on what they once confessed. And there are people who have seemed to have done that exact thing, who once claimed to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and now if you were to talk to them right now today, some of you know those kind of people, they would say, you know what, I don't don't really believe that anymore. I'm not a follower of Jesus. And I just want to remind you of the Savior's words, that this is a very sobering thing. If a person were to go on like that in an unrepentant way, Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you in heaven. I will not not own up to knowing you. You imagine what it is to have the Savior deny knowledge of you at the great judgment of Almighty God to be left all alone under the wrath of the Creator and the only just Sovereign of the universe. It is a serious thing indeed that Peter did. And at that moment, at that point, Matthew highlights um, Peter's movement. You notice this? Verse 71, he actually physically distances himself from the Lord says he went out to the entrance. So he's there by the fire in the middle of the courtyard. Jesus is being tried on one of the upper floors and he literally begins to just sort of back away, begins to make his way back to the entrance to kind of get into the shadows of that corridor perhaps to where nobody can see him, to where nobody can uh, recognize his face. I don't know, but he begins to move spiritually and physically away from identification with the Lord Jesus. The second test comes 
his retreat spiritually and physically only causes the devil to intensify the temptation now. Like the shark that smells blood in the water, or like the boxer who senses that his opponent is tiring. The devil redoubles his efforts on this saint of God. And you know, I tell you this, whenever whenever we're tested, whenever we're tempted, pulling away from the Lord rather than running to Him does not cause our problems to lessen, but only to intensify. And notice verse 71, how this trial, this test intensified for Peter. Uh, This is a different servant girl this time, probably a companion of that first servant girl. And she doesn't merely address Peter this time like the first one did, but the Bible says that she said to the bystanders, she turns to the crowd and she says to them, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And imagine now Peter standing there and feeling the looks and the stares, the scrutiny of all of those faces in the dark surrounding that charcoal fire. And in addition to this, she's, she doesn't just say he, he was with Jesus. She's insistent about this. She keeps repeating this. We find this in, in Mark's gospel. She began to say, Mark says. In other words, she, she just goes on like this for a little while. Yeah, he was with Jesus. I, I've seen him. I recognize him. You can tell. Did you see him? And you know, she, she, she's just going on. It's just intensifying. And, and not only this servant girl, but several of them begin to chime in too, Luke tells us, and John tells us that other people were adding their comments in. So now you see that as he pulls away from Christ, as he begins to deny Christ, that that Satan really comes to bear even more, sensing a person who is weak in his distance from, from Christ. And in response to that intensifying pressure of the temptation, Peter too becomes more intense in his denial of Christ, as if that would help him. This time in verse 72, the Bible says he denied it again, but this time with an oath. Something like, I swear by heaven, or I swear by the temple, I don't know this man. What a heartbreaking thing for any child of God to say, I don't know this man who is my Savior, who is my Lord. And you know, in trying to relate this to us, right? we may not be able to, we may not be often tempted to deny even knowing Jesus with our mouths. But we can relate, I think, to denying Him in one sense, by our lives that stand in contradiction to what we say we believe. The way that we might act, the way that we might speak, the way that we might respond to something, the way that we might think. And in in one sense, becoming a denial of Christ. Or we can perhaps relate to being in a situation where... uh, the conversation is such or the pressure is such that 
A person might be embarrassed to be publicly identified with Jesus or to shrink back in fear or to not stand up for the Savior when Christ is criticized by a sinful world. We can relate to those things. And it would be particularly grievous in the case of Peter and in the case of anyone, any Christian who falls in a dramatic way that brings public reproach, open shame on the name of Christ. The devil comes to him a third time, as it were, and he intensifies the temptation even more. And Matthew says after a little while, the conversation came back again to this topic. Luke says it was about an hour. They're standing there, watching the fire, listening perhaps to the distant conversation, trying to catch a word, talking amongst themselves. Peter is listening to these conversations going on and and after about an hour finally one of them one of the bystanders in fact several of the bystanders verse 73 came up to Peter this time maybe bringing a torch up closer to him to to scrutinize his face and they said one of them said certainly you two are one of them you're Galilean accent betrays you. You are one of them. You are one of Jesus' disciples. And the situation is actually even more intense than Matthew lets on. And if we can just let one of the other Gospels enlighten us a little bit, John tells us that one of the people in that third conversation, in that third interaction that that put a question to Peter that identified Peter, one of those people was actually the servant of the high priest, a relative of the one whose ear Peter had cut off. And he came to him saying, didn't I see you in the garden? So now, you see, it's intensifying every step. Now here's an eyewitness, somebody who can literally place him at the scene. And not only that, but a relative of the guy that Peter almost spiked in the head with his sword. And so all of this is coming down on Peter in this moment, and Peter, in his sinful fear, he responds with an even more intense denial than ever. Verse 74, the Bible says he began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Similar perhaps to what the crowd did before Pilate when Pilate was reluctant to crucify Christ because he found nothing, um, no charge that would stand up. And the crowd said, let his blood be upon us and upon our children if he's innocent. So Peter is bringing down an oath, a curse upon himself. May it be on my head if I don't, if I know this man. I, I don't know him, I tell you. May I be cursed if, it, if, if I'm one of his disciples. Which is exactly the place where every one of us rightfully is, right? We have brought a curse upon our heads. By our sin, the Bible says we are cursed. Every one of us is under the curse of the Almighty God because of our rebellion and our sin against God. This is where every one of us rightfully is. And what a tragedy it is to 
read this and how heartbreaking it is. You just want to cheer for Peter. He's, 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 so, <laughs> he's so lovable in, in his own impetuous way, right? Um, and, and here he is just so fearful and so failing in his faith and in fact denying the very Lord who is standing up for him in his trial. And it is a tragic thing. Anytime a Christian has a dramatic fall like this, and you know, the sad truth is we hear about this a lot, don't we? Some Christian hero, some pastor or theologian or Christian apologist or someone who's taken a very public and visible stand for the Lord Jesus, who then has a really dramatic, um, open kind of fall from that grace. And it is a heartbreaking thing. And I think every for every Christian, you know, when we read things like that, it shouldn't it shouldn't be in any of us who truly know the Lord a kind of morbid curiosity, but rather just a heartbreaking thing, knowing that every one of us has the seeds of that kind of rebellion in our own hearts, right? But by the grace of God. And so, we're sympathetic with Peter. And I think it's even more tragic with with Peter when you consider where he started. Of course, Peter is always speaking. I mean, every time you read about the apostles and somebody's saying something, it's usually Peter, right? He's just, he's that kind of guy. And you, you love him for that. But before using his mouth to curse and to deny the Lord, he used his mouth for something else. And I want you to have you turn back here now and just be reminded, back into chapter 16, to be reminded of what Peter had said with his own mouth, the same tongue with which he is cursing before was pronouncing great truth. Look at verse 13. Now when Jesus, this is Matthew 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they answered, all the standard Identifications, right? Some say John the Baptist. Others say maybe you're Elijah. Others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, He's the one who revealed this. He's the one who convinced you of this. This You are gifted by God. You are blessed indeed. Peter began at this point. He began by confessing a faith that had been divinely given. And if you are a true disciple of Jesus Christ, then the same is true of you. You are a recipient of divine insight. You've been given the gift of faith to recognize who the Lord Jesus Christ is and to confess the Lord Jesus as Lord with your mouth. That is a gift of faith. That is a miracle, uh, a, a supernatural gift from God. Jesus says, that's true of you, Peter. 
Your confession of faith that flows from your heart is a gift from God, and that's where Peter started. But then I want you to notice that Matthew also records at least five steps, five incremental steps, as it were, or five uh, elements that led up to Peter's downfall. You know, a few years ago I came back from something, came to the backyard and noticed that there was a huge limb off of our pine tree, one of our pine trees that had fallen, apparently, and was uh, lying there on the ground, big limb, very close to our house, and I was just thankful that it didn't fall on David's bedroom. Um, and so I went out a few days later with the chainsaw to cut the thing up and to haul it off and get rid of it. And um, I, at one point, I grabbed this big limb. And I don't know if you've ever worked with trees and limbs. and I mean, th- Those things are heavy. I mean, heavier than they look. You see it way up there in the tree, and the thing doesn't look very heavy. But when it's on the ground and you're actually lifting it, those things can be really heavy. And so I began to lift that limb and to move it over so I could cut it better. And, and, I, and I was shocked at how light the thing was. And uh, what I became apparent was that that thing had been being eaten by pine bark beetles for a long, long time. And that limb was nearly hollowed out by all of these beetles. And the thing was just rotten from the inside out. And, and in many ways, that's the way... That's the way a Christian falls. You don't have this huge fall all of a sudden for no reason. It's these little things that are eating our spiritual integrity away inside, internally, that are going on long before the great fall. And so Matthew, by the grace of God and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has already actually identified some of these along the way. And all I want to do is draw your attention to them this morning. These steps, the Spirit of God has graciously and truthfully preserved for us for our instruction. And the first one is in chapter 16, if you're still there. Shortly after Peter makes this great confession... Um, in fact, from that very moment, the Bible says in verse 21 now, Matthew 16, 21, that from that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So from that moment, from that great confession, Jesus began to be much more open with His disciples. Now that they're solidified in who He is, He begins to be much more open in what's going to happen to Him. But Peter, when he begins to do this, Peter comes to him and remember he said this, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Of course, this was Satan really tempting the Lord through this fallen man. But the rebuke was for Peter as well, that that Peter was being resistant. And this is the first step in Peter's downfall. He was being resistant to the Word of God out of purely human considerations. 
right? Isn't that what was happening? He's resisting the plan of God as expressed by the Savior out of purely human considerations. He's reasoning like a natural person. You're the, you're the Lord. You should be exalted. You shouldn't be crucified. Deliver yourself from this. You have the power. This should never happen to you. Peter is not submitting to the plan of God, the revelation of God. And here's, I think, I think I've seen that same kind of response in the lives of other people who claim to be Christians. I've heard people say things like, you know, I know what the Bible says, but this is just, it doesn't feel right. This is how I feel. I I know what the Bible says, but it just seems like there's a better way to respond. I know what the Bible says, but you just don't understand my situation. Being resistant to the Word of God because God's plan doesn't seem to fit with their own natural reasoning, their own human way of looking at things. That's exactly what Peter was doing. He was looking at it totally from the perspective of an earthbound, natural person, not looking at the plan of God that is far beyond his, uh, his own imagination. And I think that is the beginning of a kind of weakness in Peter that eventually set him up for such a fall. And you know, as I read this and meditated on this, wanted to consider for myself, and I want to put it now to you to consider whether there is some aspect of God's revelation that you have found your heart being somewhat resistant to. Resistant to because it doesn't fit with the way that you think naturally, the way that you feel. Just struggling to really bow the knee before the inspired revelation of God and just accepting it as true no matter how you think or feel. Is there an area like that in your life today that God is dealing with your heart about? God's bringing already maybe to your mind some ways that you've struggled in your thinking and your reasoning with yourself. There's a second thing I think that's going on in the life of Peter. And all I did, by the way, was just to look up the word Peter in the Gospel of Matthew and just look up all of the times when Peter, when Matthew mentions Peter in a negative light. And this is the second one. It's in chapter 26. So turn over just a few pages to chapter 26 in the Gospel of Matthew. You find a second step in Peter's downfall, and that is this, being overconfident in his own spiritual strength and fidelity. And this is something we have to be on the watch for in our own lives, being overconfident in our own spiritual strength and fidelity. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 30, this is after the Last Supper. The Bible says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, 
I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter speaks up again, and he answers, Though all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Here's the second thing. Peter is overconfident in his spiritual strength and his fidelity to the Savior. Um, In my growing up years, I sat for a long time under the ministry of a pastor who just really had just an outsized um, personality and in many ways a giftedness in speaking and... um, But there was a a point when I was in early high school when uh, this man fell in in a really dramatic, sadly, in a very public way um, and left, had to leave the ministry. And my dad actually was on the staff at the church as an assistant pastor. And I remember my dad um, long afterwards reflecting on all that led up to that heartbreaking situation that we all live through, I remember my dad saying, you know, John, I I really think that one of the greatest seeds that led to that downfall was was pride. He's a very gifted man, very loved, very public, um, and just almost perhaps, I I don't know everything that was going on in the heart of the man, but from from someone else who was close to him, just the idea that there was some spiritual um, pride, a sense of um, a person who had no vulnerabilities, to whom the rules and the wisdom that we all need to have don't apply. And and maybe Peter is a little like that, right? I mean, he said, Jesus says, you're all going to forsake me. Peter says, well, they all might, but I won't. That's not me. It might apply to everybody else, but it it doesn't apply to me. And you know, there are times when, when a Christian, a disciple, a true disciple of Jesus, begins to think that, you know, other people need to be more careful in what they watch or what they listen to that would pull their heart away from Christ. But, but they can have, you know, they can do it and they'll be fine. Or that other people might need you know, they need an internet filter on their internet. Help them to be careful and guarded, but I'm fine. I can handle it. Or other people, they need accountability. They need transparency, but not me. You know, there is a kind of healthy fear of falling that ought to characterize every one of us. I really mean that. A healthy Fear, not a fear that paralyzes us from any hope and confidence that God is going to continue the work that He's begun in us, but a healthy kind of fear that knows our own weakness, right? That knows our own susceptibility, that's honest about ourselves. That kind of fear is good. As we read this morning, let every man, one who thinks he stands, take heed lest he... Yeah. So today, I admonish you to check your own attitude, your own heart. Perhaps a complacency, a spiritual pride that's come in there. It's begun to think of yourself as a, a pretty good Christian. And surely, you would never fall like, like that. Brothers and sisters, guard your hearts. 
Know the evil of your heart. And be wary. There's a third thing I think that we see in the life of Peter in the Gospel of Matthew, and that is this. Being dismissive of the correction that God brings into your life. This is what happened with Peter. I think it's what happens with us. That we are sometimes dismissive of the correction that God brings in our life. In fact, you're right here in the text. Matthew 26, immediately after Jesus warns the disciples and Peter speaks his confident words, I will never forsake you. Then Jesus turns and speaks to Peter directly. Not to all of the disciples, but right to Peter. He says in verse 34, Truly I tell you, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter, how does he respond now? Again, he says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Jesus has just taken this warning and applied it directly to Peter. And Peter is dismissive of that correction. And I think that this can be something that sets us up for a dangerous fall. Anytime, anytime any Christian is dismissive of correction that God is bringing into his life. Perhaps it's the correction of a pastor who counsels you, who says, brother, sister, what are you doing? This is not the right way to live. This is not the right way to respond. Or maybe you're a young person. Listen to me, you young people. and Your mom and dad come to you with correction. And you're dismissive of it. Or maybe it's a brother or sister, a Christian counselor who, who says to you, listen, there's something in your life that, that I'm concerned about that you really need to think about, you need to pray about. It's concerning me. I, I want to speak to you as a brother or sister. Or maybe they don't say it very nicely, but they point out to you something in your life. And you know how we tend to respond? You, you can just fill in the blank. Embarrassment. Anger. Um, self-defense. Rather than stopping to say, whoa, maybe I do need to step back and take a look at my life. Maybe there's something to this criticism. Maybe there really is something in my life that I'm not seeing. I'm blind. I've been blind to. God, show me. Now, we, we, we make up for it with, with saying, well, that doesn't apply to me. Well, that person, they have, they, oh, they're one to speak. Right? Isn't that one we fall back on a lot? Well, they're one to speak. They have a load of problems. In this case, Peter didn't even have that to fall back on, right? I mean, this is the Savior speaking to him. And, he, and, he, and he's, able, he's able somehow in that moment to say, Lord, you're wrong. I'm not going to deny you. You know, I have a great fearfulness for any Christian person who is resistant who is habitually resistant to correction that God is trying to bring into his life. Now, there certainly are times when people will criticize you, and the criticism is not biblically valid. But if you are a person, if, if there is a person who is habitually resistant to, to godly correction, then he is setting himself up for a fall. And Matthew, led by the Spirit, draws our attention to this very response from Peter. And it's like those pine bark beetles just slowly eating away. There's a fourth thing that 
our attention is drawn to in this gospel, and that is this, being lethargic in your prayer life. A fourth step on the way to a big fall is being lethargic in your prayer life. Look at Matthew chapter 26 and verse 36 now, just a few verses down the page. Then Jesus went with them, the disciples, to a place called Gethsemane, and He said, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, he began to be sorrowful and very troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me to pray. He's asking them to pray, to watch with him, to stay up, to intercede with him, to pray for themselves. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And verse 40, and he came back to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Peter, Peter, this is the most crucial time of your life, Peter. Haven't I been telling you all that's going to happen? All the danger that you're in spiritually and you can't be concerned enough about your soul to intercede? to pray, to beg the Lord for grace and for mercy and for strength. He says to Peter, verse 41, watch and pray that you would not enter into temptation. And you just wonder how different might things have turned out if Peter, humbled by the Lord's warning and fearful of falling away, would have besought the Lord for mercy and prayed in that garden earnestly. You wonder if perhaps things would have turned out differently, like when the Ninevites repented and God spared them. Perhaps Peter would have stood in the face of temptation if he'd have watched and prayed. J.C. Ryle said, Prayer and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Prayer will consume sin, or sin will choke out prayer. And I found that to be true. In my life, I don't know about you. I have found that to be true. And here's good news, friends. You cannot pray, you cannot be praying earnestly and genuinely and be sinning at the same time. Amen? Now you can be praying and sinning. James tells us that. Praying in order to consume it on your own desires. God, give me, help me, you know, give me what I want. But you cannot be genuinely, earnestly, biblically praying and sinning at the same time. Sin drives out, uh, our prayer drives out sin. And you know, spiritual strength is in Christ alone and prayer is that link that unites us to the Savior. A person who is not praying is setting himself up for a fall. It may not happen today because you didn't pray this morning. It may not happen later on this week because you missed five out of seven days to really have any conversation with God. But a person who habitually isolates himself from the only source of strength in the face of temptation, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, a person who habitually isolates himself from communion with Christ in prayer is setting himself up for a fall. I ask you this morning to examine your heart, examine your life, examine your time, examine your mind. 
What's your prayer life like? And I say it to myself and to you that we may be spared from a fall like our brother Peter. That we may learn from the example that the Lord has inspired for us. Well, there is one more thing I think that Matthew points out and that comes in Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. We see that Peter is willingly putting himself in a position in which he will be tempted. A fifth failure that leads to a great downfall is willingly putting yourself in a position to be tempted when you know, when you ought to know your own weakness. The verse 57 says that those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered, and Peter was following at a great distance as far as the courtyard, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. I just wonder if Peter had taken his own weakness seriously, if perhaps wisdom would have kept him away from such a place. He would have spent time alone just praying that he would not fail that he would not fall, rather than putting himself in this position. And You know, I, I, do, I notice in, in my life, and I think it's true in the lives of all of us who face temptations, that there are certain situations in which we find ourselves where we know we will be tempted, right? Isn't that, have you ever found that to be true of you? Certain situations, if you let yourself get in that situation, that situation of mind or that situation, a uh, physical uh, place or, or whatever it is, if you let yourself get there, then temptation is going to be hard and strong and fast. And the wise man foresees the evil and he hides himself, right? The proverb says. There are certain situations that are triggers certain situations where we find that we're vulnerable or we shouldn't even put ourselves. In, in the Proverbs, the, the, the writer warned his sons about the forbidden woman. And remember what he said? Don't even walk along the street by her house. Don't even go that way when you go home. Go around the block over here. Don't put yourself in the kind of situation where you're going to face that strong temptation. Are there certain situations that if you were wise, you would avoid? There are certain situations right now that you find yourself infrequently that you kind of, you know they're not healthy for you to be in. Maybe there's a situation in which you are strongly tempted that is absolutely unavoidable. You just literally cannot get away from it. Maybe it's inside of you. I encourage you to be wary, to be humble, and to be prayerful when you find yourself in that situation. To have a battle plan, to fight your own temptations, to give you courage, to give you right thinking. God recorded these things for us, friends. Not, not to humiliate our brother Peter, but for our own good, to help us. And God, in the end used a simple farm animal to bring the greatest apostle to his senses. The Bible says in verse 74, immediately after all of this, the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered in that moment the saying of Jesus, 
before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. In addition to this, the Bible says that at that very moment, John tells us this, that or Luke tells us that our Lord turned and looked at Peter. So evidently either Peter was down in the courtyard, our Lord was on trial in a kind of an open area where he could look down and at that very moment see Peter. Or perhaps the Lord was being led from one part of the uh, facility to another part and at that moment Peter happens to be um, denying him and our Lord turns and he looks. And you can just imagine what's going on between them in that look, right? that look that would just crush Peter with the sense of his own guilt. How could I have done this to the one who I love? And the look on the face of the Savior, I don't know what that expression said, but you can just imagine the sadness of the Master as he sees his disciple faltering. And perhaps even a little bit of the the relentless love that's there for that failing disciple. And maybe you know that look, having seen it with the eyes of faith, that look that brings, first of all, heavy conviction to you for having denied the Savior, but then the look that also brings with it tender love and grace. John Newton wrote about that look. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood who fixed his loving eyes on me as near his cross I stood. And never till my dying breath will I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. But with a second look, he said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for your ransom paid. I died that you might live. And in that moment, Peter broke, you know. Have you ever had that? Have you ever, maybe in a service, or reading the Word, or just in prayer, and you just, the Lord came to you with such grace, you saw the look from the Savior, and you just broke down in that moment? I hope you've had that experience at some point in your life. And and Peter was just a broken man. The Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. And interestingly, that is Matthew's last mention of Peter. You won't find Peter talked about anymore. That's it. That's where Matthew leaves the story. So, is there any hope for Peter? Will he change? Because Judas, who betrayed Jesus, is going to turn around in the next paragraph and say, Oh, I have sinned. Will it be the same for Peter as it was for Judas then? Why does Matthew leave the story here? And I I can't help but think that the point is to remind us that sin is a serious matter. And in that moment, when that person is, is 
choosing to deny the Lord Jesus as sinning deliberately and willfully, in that moment, it's not clear where he's going to end up. And, and so don't any one of us ever say, well, you know, I can just sin, I'll just sin, and then I'll repent. And then I'll be okay with God, right? No Christian should ever say that. Is it true that Christians sin and then sometimes repent and then get right with God? Absolutely, praise God. But no Christian should ever in that moment say, it doesn't matter whether I sin or not because I can just repent. This story is just left like this. Like, what will happen with Peter? And right now, if you are under conviction and God is dealing with you about those little subtle steps, I hope that you will repent of those things right now. Say, God, do a work in my heart. Change me. You know, we don't know how your story will end. I'm looking around in a room, more than 100 people, and I get to be with you and live my Christian life with you and teach you and pastor you for however long. Maybe it's been a year. Maybe it's been five years. Maybe I get to be with you ten years. Some of you, I've gotten to be with you longer than that. But I get to see you for a little piece of time, and I don't know how your story is going to end. And your brothers and sisters here, they're watching you. They don't know how your story is going to end any more than at this point. If, if all we have is this story, we don't know how Peter's life is going to end. For Peter, we do know the end because we have other texts. But with you, I pray that your end will be good. I pray that you will come to repentance. And if you repent, there is hope for fallen disciples. Amen? There is hope. And for Peter, Jesus would come to him and forgive him and restore him and commission him and he would stand up, that same guy would stand up later and make the boldest of proclamations on the day of Pentecost and face death unflinchingly for the sake of Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you recognize some of the signs of spiritual rot and decay in yourself, I pray that you would repent and cry out to God because there is no more gracious master than the Savior. I tell you that in all the world, there's no more gracious Savior. There's no more gracious Lord. So how will your story end? I pray that today would be a move in the right direction. Let's bow our heads, consider our lives. Just have a time of quiet prayer before the Lord reflecting on this message.